If you're a fashion student or the parent of a fashion student, then listen up. You're going to want to hear this. Hems and Brims is a virtual fashion mentorship program for Black teenagers ages 14 to 18 who are interested in a career in fashion. They connect students to fashion industry professionals and consist of one-on-one sessions and group sessions. Available groups include basics of sewing, business of fashion, sustainable fashion, Black representation in fashion, and fashion culture and identity. So everything you need to know to navigate this crazy industry that we call fashion. With a program fee of only $275, students will receive a welcome gift that includes a sewing machine and fabric. Register today at hemsandbrims.com. That's www.hemsandbrims.com. And tell them Black Fashion History sent you. Welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people to the fashion industry. It's Black history, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Martin. Hey class, welcome back to another episode of Black Fashion History. And once again, as always, I'm excited to talk to you. So recently, I've been going on this journey to uncover more of Georgia's fashion history. I feel like New York does a great job, obviously, being sort of like the fashion capital of the U.S. with keeping its fashion history even black fashion history, like there's not as much information as, you know, like some of our white counterparts, but there's still a lot of black fashion history that's easily found and to be discovered. Now in Georgia, I've been finding it harder to find the fashion tastemakers that have contributed so much to the city, the city of Atlanta, I mean, and then the state of Georgia. And I don't know if that's because people back in the day when they started out their fashion career, maybe they just moved straight to New York and then they became solidified as part of New York's fashion history. I don't know what the case is, but I have begun this journey to uncover more of Georgia's black fashion history and share that with you all on the podcast. And today is the first installment of that. Now, let me tell you something right now. I don't know how long this will last, meaning I don't know if this will be the first and last episode of my Georgia Black Fashion History or if this will go on for hundreds of episodes or if I'll find something, switch to something else and then come back to Georgia Fashion History. I just don't know because I don't know what I'll find. I don't know what I'm going to uncover, but I'm excited today to share with you all about two wonderful black women milliners who were born in Georgia and contributed to fashion that you probably have never heard of. Now, I hope you guys have been keeping up with your fashion terminology so you already know what a milliner is. And if you don't, or if you're new to my podcast and you've never heard that term before, a milliner is essentially a hat maker, but like a couture hat maker, made to order hat maker. So our first Georgia black woman milliner is Lillian B. Head. So Lillian B. Head was born in Beaufort, Georgia, the fourth of five children, and she spent her time as a child making hats and clothes and just, you know, being a young designer. She would even sew leaves together to make hats and other clothing. 
She graduated from high school in 1939 and graduated from Chicago's Louis Miller School of Millinery in June of 1946. After graduating from millinery school, she came back down to Georgia and she tried to get a job at several high-end boutiques in the Atlanta area. One in particular was Loretta Bontas, which was a high-end Atlanta atelier. Being a black woman in the 1940s and 50s in the deep south of Georgia, she was obviously rejected as a designer and was even told that white girls do that, meaning only white girls are designers, not black girls. Instead, Bonta, the owner of Loretta Bonta's, she was a French milliner. She hired Lillian as her personal maid. Of course, having to feed herself and her family, Lillian took the job and, you know, became a maid like many black women did during that time. Now, over the course of time working as a maid for Loretta Bonta, her employer would start to see how skilled she was at designing, at hat making, and just how great she was even as her job as her personal maid. In one instance, Lillian approached her employer for a raise. She was denied, but then later her employer came back and gave her that raise and told her, don't tell the others, meaning don't tell the other colored women who work for me that I gave you this money. After officially being hired as a milliner, Lillian Head became known as a whimsical and innovative designer. She gained a lot of attention among the Atlanta elite. She designed hats for the wives of Ivan Allen Jr. and Gildstein Lewis Chandler, who was a famed Morehouse professor from the 1930s to the 1960s. The hat that Lillian had designed for his wife, she wore it to their daughter's wedding, and their daughter was the first African-American couple to get married at the Methodist Church in Georgia. Lillian's designs also appeared in department stores across New York and Atlanta, and she gained the attention of Mary McLeod Bethune. Now, many of you know Mary McLeod Bethune as a black educator, civil rights activist, you know, founder of Bethune-Cookman University, all of that great stuff. But what you don't know, she was also a fashion lady. She sponsored the founding and religiously supported the organization, the National Association of Fashion and Accessory Designers. And a quick aside, the NAFAD was a trade group founded in New York City for black fashion professionals who have been blocked from entering the fashion industry and who, you know, had limited opportunity. It was founded by both Mary McLeod Bethune-Cookman and Janetta Welch-Brown to actively champion black professionals in their work, remove the mainstream gatekeepers, and help them succeed in the fashion landscape. Lillian Head gained the attention of Mary McLeod Bethune, like I said earlier, and was invited to design for a fashion show, likely an NAFAD fashion show in New York because, again, she had sponsored the founding of the organization. And of course, everyone in attendance loved her innovative, unique, and whimsical style. She was also known for creating themed hats. I think that was what she was most known for and what made her famous, quote unquote, in Atlanta. 
She created a look modeled after the Atlanta landmark, the Polaris Restaurant, when the Hyatt Regency opened in downtown Atlanta. So she made the hat to match the design of the restaurant, a coat to mirror the Hyatt's design, and then a handbag modeled after the elevators. And now if you run over to blackfashionhistory.com, you'll see a picture of exactly what I'm talking about. You'll see Miss Lillian Head in the hat, the bag, and the coat. During her career and towards the end, many of her designs were kept by Lois Lane. And if you listen to my podcast, you know who that is, who was the creator of the Black Fashion Museum in Harlem. And that was the largest collection of Black fashion memorabilia. So Lois Lane kept a lot of Lillian hats and designs to preserve it for history. After the passing of Lois Lane and the dissolution of the Black Fashion Museum, Lillian's head collection now lives at the Smithsonian. So you can go see that in DC, like head over to DC, take a trip, visit the Smithsonian, the African-American history exhibit, and check out all of this stuff that I've been talking about on the podcast. Lillian Head passed away in 2010, but she has a legacy that can and will live on forever as long as we continue to tell her story. Now, the second Georgia milliner that I want to tell you guys about is Mae Reeves. Now, Mae Reeves is a little different because, yes, she was born in Georgia, but most of her life and career happened in Philly. But I am claiming her as part of Georgia fashion history. Philly can claim her as part of Philly fashion history, but for the purposes of my research, she's Georgia fashion history as well. Now, Mae Reeves was born in 1912 in Vidalia, Georgia. She learned to sew and cook after her parents passed away when she was only 14 years old. And by the age of 16, she had already started college and would travel to Chicago to study millinery. And in my research, it did not say, but I have a strong feeling that she also went to the Louis Miller School of Millinery in Chicago and took a couple courses there. But she had an uncle who lived in Chicago, so she would travel up there often as a child, as a teenager, and study the art of hat making. I forgot to mention this earlier, but she was actually born as Lula Mae Grant and her name changed to Mae Reeves throughout the course of the years with her career and of course marriages. She eventually moved from Vidalia, Georgia to Philadelphia as part of the Great Migration, which was a time in U.S. history when a lot of American blacks moved from the Jim Crow South into the North for more opportunity and less racism. At that point in her life, she was a widowed single mother and she was just looking for more stability and opportunities to grow and to provide for herself and her children. So she ended up leaving her son in Georgia with her mother and she moved up to Philadelphia to build this life. She got a job at Seymour's Ladies Apparel Shop and worked in the Philly apparel industry for a while. And then she acquired a $500 loan from Citizens and Southern Bank. Citizens and Southern Bank was a Black-owned bank in Philadelphia. And the loan that she acquired was to start her own millinery shop. It was going to be called, or it was called, May's Millinery Shop. And this was at the age of 28. The $500 loan that she acquired from the Black Bank would be worth about $9,000 today to give you a good picture of how much money she needed to start up her business. And side note, this is the beauty of Black banks and Black financial institutions because 
during this time, you know that a traditional white mainstream bank was not going to lend a young black woman any money to start her business. And the same thing happens today. Like a lot of these banks and financial institutions are gay kept and black people are kept out of, you know, acquiring the funds that they need to start their businesses and to grow their businesses. I think one of the biggest factors in black businesses that lead to their demise sometimes is underfunding. And so it's so important to have banks and programs in our communities that's going to prioritize us so that we're able to fund our businesses and build that wealth. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. (laughs) So with this loan, May became the first black woman to own a business in what was then Philly's commercial hub on South Street, aka Philadelphia's version of the garment district. As her business grew, she was able to bring all of her kids to Philadelphia and raise them. Her hats have been worn by famous people like Ella Fitzgerald, Eartha Kitt, Marian Anderson, Lena Horne, and so much more. The business continued to grow again, and she remarried and moved both her home and her store to West Philadelphia, West Philly, where she became, again, the first black woman to own a business on the commercial corridor of 60th Street. So May Rees was just out here breaking barriers in her community, and we love to see it. Her store became a safe haven for black women to enjoy themselves, shop, and experience the luxuries that they were often denied at other stores. Customers would come in, sit at a table, sip champagne and tea or sherry and talk to each other and just experience a relaxing environment where they were being catered to. They were also able to try on sample hats as well as fill out the fabrics, the feathers, the jewels and all of the other luxurious things that Mary's had to offer in her shop. Her custom hats took a while to make, so it was not a quick microwavable process, but women love sitting in the shop and meeting each other. This was an opportunity to bring in or to bring together different aspects of black, high society and middle class or, or lower income society as well. May Reeves hats were considered showstoppers and everyone wanted one. Anyone who was anyone would have a hat, you know, to stunt when they go out to different events, of course, when they go to church. So you would have socialites like the DuPonts would come in and order hats galore. And you will also have like school teachers and maids who would save up years or a year's worth of salary to purchase one of her hats to be able to wear them to church on Easter Sunday. So it was a place for black women of all walks of life to come mix and mingle and experience a luxury that the world often told them that they were not allowed to have. She was also known for her uniquely designed and innovative turbans as well as her work with feathers. So women from all over the tri-state area, I'm talking about New York, Virginia, all of that, Connecticut, Everywhere came to her Philadelphia store to shop her looks and, you know, to be essentially a part of history because your girl was out there making history. In addition to her shop being a safe space for women and a place where all women could gather, also a place that actively contributed to the black community. May Reeves and her husband, Joel Reeves, were 
also members of the NAACP, active members. And May Reeves was the president of the 60th Street Business Association. And so her space became a gathering spot for those engaged in politics, community organization, and social justice. There were many times, actually every year on election day, she would turn her shop into a polling place where... Voters could come in, black voters especially, could come in and vote without problems or issues, and she would even serve cake to the voters. You know, something to keep them going on election day, which, by the way, is now illegal in Georgia. You cannot serve voters any food or anything like that while they're in line, but these Atlanta voting lines be so ridiculously long. It's just another way to increase voter suppression. So I encourage you all to go out there and vote. Midterms elections are coming up. And let's turn around some of these voter suppression laws in Georgia. Okay, that was my PSA. And I don't talk politics much, but that just reminded me of the ridiculousness that's happening. May Shop stayed in business all the way up until 1997 when she retired at the age of 85. And I was six years old in 1997. And I was, you know, born and raised in New York. And she's right next door. I wish I knew enough at six to encourage my mom to go out to Philly and get one of her hats so I could have a piece of black fashion history. Anyway, when Mary's retired at the age of 85, she insisted that her family leave her shop locked and untouched so that she can go in whenever she felt like it and start the business again if she ever had the urge to. This put her and her shop in a unique position because that means that everything was in pristine shape as it was during the height of her career. So when the Smithsonian came looking for artifacts for its museum, her shop was the perfect. And it was perfectly preserved and able to share a piece of history that we would not have had if she wasn't so adamant about that. In 2010, May Rees was honored by the mayor of Philadelphia for her amazing contributions to the city, for being such a visionary and a beacon in her community and a leader in entrepreneurship. And six years later, in 2016, she passed away at the age of 104 years old. You can also see most of Mary's work at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and they have an exact, exact replica of her millinery shop with everything as it was in the height of her career because of that preservation. So you guys can go there and essentially walk through and have the Mary's millinery experience to a certain extent. So I encourage you all to head over to DC, like I said before, and check out the Smithsonian. And that's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Black Fashion History. If you loved what you heard, and I know you did, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcasting platforms and on all social media at Black Fashion History Podcast. Don't forget to visit us online at our website, blackfashionhistory.com. And of course, if you don't do any of that stuff, make sure to tune in again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye-bye.